Hello again. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you open our hearts to it and open up it to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can tell when someone is trying to sell you something, even if they're very sincere about it. There's something fake about the way they smile or overly excited about their word choices or the, it's the too, gleam, or too white gleam on their teeth. Um, the man in the car lot, for example, or the extravagant reassurances of the lady recommending you buy the slightly more extensive dress for this season. Now, those are explicitly sales. That's where you expect things to be sold to you. But it's also in the well-rehearsed opening line from Elder Steve and Elder Jed, who would like a minute to discuss with you the Book of Mormon. It's featured in the, the hollow despair of the, the latest round of Facebook posts after the next actress or singer dies, and the online crowd rushes to signal virtuously how devastated they are, consolable only by sympathetic likes and comments, trying to sell to you how good a person they are. And there are a couple of standard formulas for the way that people will try and sell things to you. They must convince you that they have an answer to a problem that you have. If you walk onto the parking, into the, uh, the car lot of your nearest Zups, they will assume your problem is that you require a new car, and that's probably right, so they just happen to have the car that you need. Alternatively, they might have to do the harder task of convincing you that you have a problem that you hadn't previously discovered, and then also that they have the solution to that problem. And if you had a TV through the uh, early 90s, you didn't know that you needed a set of Demtel brand kitchen knives. And you didn't know that until Tim Shaw told you that you needed them and demonstrated to you that Demtel knives are surgical steel and they stay sharp even after cutting leather and wood and frozen food. And if you call now, you'll receive a flexible filleting knife. But wait, there's more. And like many Australians, you might have watched this wide eyes uh, bombarded by the images of tomatoes being thrown at a knife from an arm's length away and just slicing effortlessly in half and the knife uh, chopping neatly through the, the leather toe cap of someone's wingtip and you'd think, what if I ever needed to cut through a shoe? <laughs> I suppose I'd need a knife that could handle it. And then you'd buy the knives and then you'd use them and they'd perform adequately. Like most knives do, they cut veggies and in retrospect, why would you ever need a knife that could cut through shoes and wood? Uh, if it did, how would that be helpful? You'd go through the capsicum and then the chopping board and halfway into the kitchen counter before you got your balance. <laughs> Actually, you didn't need those knives at all. And we can't blame people, or, or we can't blame such salespeople for, for selling their products. Usually they are a solution for a problem, just not the problem we try and solve with them. There are a million ab masters and ab blasters and ab tastics and ab smashers. Um, that absolutely would have created cheese grater abs on their owners if they had actually been used every day rather than being left in the corner of a living room just to glance at and make yourself feel fatter and more miserable. But this is precisely the tendency of us to buy and to buy into things that we don't need or that don't work as advertised, and that makes us wary. And it's this instinct, the what's this guy trying to sell to me and do I actually need it? It's that instinct that people confront when they first hear the gospel. You know this, it's the reasoning that people use when they dismiss Christianity as a scam. It's the way for the church to get your money. Uh, religion is an invention to control people. You're just trying to scam me into joining your cult. Now the message of the gospel is that man used to be living 
in the world in relationship to God, and now that relationship is broken. And this leaves only the life in this world as our connection to God. And under a painful strain at that, you either accept God's help to repair that relationship through Jesus, so your life will be renewed, or when that life runs out, you're utterly separated from God in a way that Jesus compares to being burned alive. And if you hear that, and you haven't accepted that premise that, that life is painful because of man's division from God, then that sounds a lot like someone trying to sell you something and convince you of a problem that you didn't think you had and then offering you a solution. That solution seems to require a pretty big price tag to abandon uh, the conceptualization, the way that we thought about the world before we heard that news. All the dreams we thought our life was going to be have to be rearranged, shaped into this new way of looking at the world as a servant of God. That's why we call it this total surrender. That's the kind of price that you want to be certain about because the cost of getting it wrong is huge. And you want to know what the speaker is getting out of this sale before you buy into it. You want to know what kind of assurance would you need, though, to believe someone when they tell you that everything that you know about the world you live in is wrong and needs to change? What would you need to hear or see to believe that? This passage is about authenticity. It's about the difference between how someone might sell people an idea or a product or a religion and the distinctly different way in which the people of God might spread the gospel. So let's look again at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor we never put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. There's a number of distinctions that are made here that Paul uses to remind the Thessalonians why they believed him and why they didn't dismiss him as a con man and a salesman. He was willing to suffer for it. He'd been treated terribly as a result of giving this message before, and the evangelists did not use flattery and falseness to cover up greed. They did not come seeking praise and social power. He says, this is what it's like to speak as one who is approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In verses 7 to 12, Instead, we were like young children among you. That's a quick note there. Some translations render this more clearly. Uh, we approached you as though you were young children. The idea is this parental care and tenderness. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. They worked hard to support themselves while they were preaching the gospel. They were determined not to be a burden, 
because they didn't want the message of the gospel to be muddied by the possibility that they were just preaching for room and board. They were not just traveling Jewish storytellers exchanging their stories for easy living off these people. They gave up a potentially peaceful life with their own people. In Paul's case, a fairly wealthy and respected life. To go to places where they are mostly unknown, and if not unknown, probably hated. To work harder jobs in a strange place with less compensation. That's pretty much giving up everything. And Matthew 13, 45 talks about this, what they call the pearl of great price. And it goes like this. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. And Paul and his companions, they lived among these people in such a way that displayed they had been willing to pay that price. To give up everything. So what are they actually getting out of this evangelism deal? What motivates them so much they would turn their lives inside out? Paul tells us in verse 8, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And that's how the early church was spread. That's why we can call this authenticity. It's sharing the gospel and our lives in a way that can only be motivated by love. And no matter how you dig into it and lift up layers and try and guess what people mean, at the bottom of it all is love. Authenticity is sharing the gospel and our lives in a way that can only be motivated by love. And they felt when Paul was there with them that they'd listened to the gospel and had begun to share their lives and that his relationship with them wasn't exploitive or dismissive. It was protective and affectionate and even fatherly. This is very different from the kind of fakeness that you detect in people who are trying to sell you something or convince you of something for their own gain. 2017 is actually a uh, significant anniversary for the church. Uh, on October 31st, it will mark the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther uh, nailing his 95 theses, his 95 uh, protests to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. This protest was the beginning of Protestantism, uh, a movement to which this church and many others owe a great deal. There were protests against the Roman church um, for many reasons, well, for 95 reasons at least. But most famously, Luther was protesting against church greed. He saw the destruction that greed was wreaking in the kingdom of God. And there are very few people, Catholic or Protestant, who would not agree that the church of 1517 was painfully and awfully and disgustingly greedy. The church was constantly building bigger and better cathedrals, dripping with gold, featuring the finest artwork that has ever been produced in the history of mankind. But such enterprises cost a lot of money, which means the church needs to convince people to give a lot more money. And Luther was responding particularly to one such fundraising effort, one called indulgence preaching. It's the idea that they put out that uh, there's... After a person died, they were forgiven by God, but they needed to be punished for their sins a little bit in purgatory, which is a terrible place of punishment, like hell, but only until you pay off your tab in a couple of centuries. So, not that bad, really, all things considered, like the Coke Zero version of hell. A familiar flavor without the eternal consequences. But fortunately, this, pun this punishment has a monetary value 
which you can pay in advance for yourself or retrospectively for a loved one. So an indulgence preacher would come to town and whip up a sermon about the pain of purgatory. Hey, your grandmother is probably suffering there right now, but you can buy her out with a small monetary sacrifice. Sacrifices that added up to cathedrals and monuments for the church. Now, with a sect of priests who lived apart from the people, who had exclusive access to the word of God, who were known to use this exclusive access to the word of God to emotionally manipulate people into giving them their small worldly riches, that seems just about the exact opposite of the kind of church that Paul is describing as the one that wins hearts for the gospel. Is it any wonder that 500 years ago the church had become so bloated and corrupt and stale that apparently God's plan was to smash it into a thousand pieces and the many independent churches that we see today? That's what can happen to the kingdom of God if it stops being about sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. People either obey it out of fear and habit, which is not the same as being saved, or they see through it and they suspect it's more about power or greed or about accumulating praise than it really is about loving people or loving God. And that's a hideous thing to happen, to have God's people as his greater church wander so far from the life described in the Gospels and in the Word. Now, the Thessalonians knew at the very least that Paul believed what he said because he had suffered for it. He had authenticity that was apparent in every dimension of his life. He spoke the Gospel and he lived it like someone who believed it. So for them, they knew it wasn't a scam. And verse 13 goes further. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, as the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, what does it mean, the word of God that is at work in you who believe? He's not talking about the Bible as the word of God in this case, as if they were living according to scripture. The Bible hadn't been compiled at that time. And it doesn't seem to me that Paul means the word, the logos, as in Jesus himself, and the way John talks about Christ. I think this is just the word of God in the way that God classically speaks to his people in the world, through his prophets, when God speaks to people and they respond. The word of God is at work in those who believe in the same way that the word of the Lord has always had the power in the world when the prophets spoke it. God speaks his command for his people. They obey and they receive his blessing, or they don't and they receive his curse. And in this case, the proof seems to be that the world reacts, and it reacts badly to the receipt of this word. And I suppose we should expect that would, as Jesus said, they persecute me, will they not persecute you also? But the life they had begun to live in obedience to God, in obedience to the word, was so right, and it had such value that it's worth giving up home and comfort and even life for, just as Paul did and the Jewish Christians did. It costs everything, and it is worth everything and more. Verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. 
In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, and the wrath of God has come upon them at last. The Jewish opposition to the word of God going out here, to the, the gospel message going out, was bitter and jealous. And now the Gentiles had become followers of Jesus in numbers enough, significant enough for people to think about. And now the people of Thessalonica, the Gentiles, began to get bitter and jealous about it and oppressive to the church there, which is exactly the effect they must have expected since that's what happened to Paul when he lived according to the gospel. And that is the life that he was modeling for them when he came to them. And like Paul, they've found that this new life in a renewed relationship with God is not free of suffering, it's just worth the suffering. And that's part of what gives the gospel its enormous power. It, it claims that it's worth suffering for. And the people who preach it suffer for the opportunity. And they are delighted still to share the gospel and their lives with people. Evangelism needs this kind of authentic life behind it if it's going to work. It's the proof to back up the claim, and it's the best proof you could ask for. When the gospel first came forth in the world, it came with signs and miracles to proclaim it, and that was a divine stamp of approval. And I'll admit that sometimes I've wondered, wouldn't it be nice today to be able to wander through the juvenile oncology ward with miraculous healing power? And how might the world react to such a display? Could they still deny that Jesus is God? Yes, they can, and yes, they would just as the world did with Jesus, who came with great power and great miracles, but nonetheless began his church on the work of the men he'd spent three years sharing life with. And the church they created in the name of Jesus came with miracles to precede it, but survived because of the shared life and love of its members. And the church of Jesus today is full of people with testimonies of amazing things happening in their lives, some of them miraculous, but it survives because the Spirit of God operates in a church of believers who love one another and who share their lives together. That's the authenticity that we need. And that's the way that the kingdom grows and spreads. Because humans are meant to live cooperative, harmonious lives in worship of God. It's what we were designed for. It shouldn't be surprising that that's what works best. And once you're doing that, there's nothing that the world can offer you that is better and there's nothing with which the world can threaten you that's worth giving it up. Now, we're not persecuted in the same way that the early church was. We're not persecuted by our countrymen, our fellow Australians, in the same way that the Thessalonians were, or that the Christian Jews were. We feel social pressure that moves counter to our values in many areas. All the good TV seems to have gratuitous content that doesn't add anything, and we worry that our young people will be pressured by their less religious peers into doing less religious things. But these things are not like suffering, like being beaten and whipped is suffering. So do we have that power now to demonstrate to the world that our lives in Christ are worth suffering for? There are some Christians who pray for persecution for the church, hoping that it will lead to revival. Um, that suffering will be good for it. It'll drive off all the nominal Christians and then leave us with a core of really dedicated believers who can get business done. But in actuality, I think that the things that really challenge and oppress people through their lives haven't changed at all for us today. We still live with a fear that 
What we have won't be enough to spare our family the needless suffering of, of deprivation. We have to live in the face of that fear. And are we living in the face of that fear as everyone has that fear in a way that demonstrates that our faith in Jesus is authentic? We still, despite our faith, have rifts and grudges in our families that keep hurting us. Are we living in the face of that pain in a way that demonstrates that our faith in Jesus is authentic? We all lose people to sickness who we weren't ready to let go. We all lose people in sudden, pointless ways who had so much left to give. And every one of us, no matter how healthy, is still blazing away down the path of their lives towards their own death. Every child we bring into the world, we know that we will fail in some way that will hurt them. And beyond that, that the nature of the world is such that it will break their heart and abuse them, and sometimes more than they can bear. Some of us are suddenly alone in a home that we may have shared with someone for years. Some of us started alone, are currently alone, and will be alone in that way through their life. Or without the family they might have dreamed they would have. All of us have times when the plot of our life doesn't seem to make sense and the dreams that we were so sure we'd achieve, we have to let go of forever. And every one of us, rich or poor, weak or strong, wakes up in the morning to a day in which anything could happen and anything could be taken away from us. And if everything was taken away from us, like Job, we would still be compelled to follow the Lord and trust his plan. This is the real suffering that the world has to offer, and it's woven into the very nature of being. You can't live and dodge these things. And the question everyone spends their life answering or running from is, does the life I'm living match or exceed the value of the suffering it's pouring out on me? And plenty of times people decide the answer is no. And they become bitter and dedicated to paying back into the world the same pain that's dealt to them. It's a path of rage and ingratitude that destroys people. And the only chance that someone has, someone like that even has, to change, to find a life that is worth living, is if you tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and you share your life with him. And he sees to no one's surprise that the same agony and disaster that populates every life populates yours, but for some reason, it doesn't break you. This is true in evangelism, it's true in mentoring young Christians, and it's not limited to particular giftings. Since everyone on this earth has to deal with their own scoop of the world's injustice and misery. So the two questions that come out of this are these. Are you living your life authentically so that the eternal values and the quality of God's love shine out of you? And are you sharing your life with people in an intimate enough, intimate enough way that they can see that shining out of you? Who has God put in your life that you can love, who you can see and who can see you living your life out in the way that Jesus described for you? And to see the way that Jesus carries you through the things that would otherwise have wrecked you. Have you lost track of that deep gratitude and love that gives you the power to overcome all things in Jesus' name? These are important questions. And it's worth all of us answering.
Because we are living in a world and a community of hurting people who feel life kicking them in the teeth all the time. And they've heard the name of Jesus and it doesn't mean much to them. They might even know the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, but they don't pay it much mind. But whether they know it or not, they are dying for you to show them what it means to live a life worth living and a life worthy of God who is calling them to redemption into his kingdom and glory. So let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you for the gospel, for the message of your son's death and resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, the restored relationship with you, a message that he suffered and died so that we might live forever. And the truth with that, that a life lived for you is a life worth suffering and dying. Help us not to live our lives in a, in a Christian bubble with a light kept in where the world can't see it. Help us to see with fresh eyes the people you've put in our life, that you are speaking to from our lives. And bless us, God, to speak your word boldly and to live our life for you boldly in a way that brings you glory and brings people into your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.